Welcome to Call Your Girlfriend, a podcast for long distance besties everywhere. I'm Aminatu So. And I'm Ann Friedman. We're talking about um, a thing that I care about a lot, actually universal basic income with a person that I care about a lot, Annie Lowry, who is like one of our smartest friends and a journalist and the author of Give People Money, a book that is out now. So if you want to buy it, you can literally one-click order that thing or walk to your closest bookstore and get it. Hi, Ann Friedman. Hey, hey. How's it going? You know, it's going good. Uh, <laughs> I feel like I'm using my LinkedIn voice on you. Um, it's going great. <laughs> it's going pretty great. We're getting ready to go on the road. So all of these episodes are pre-recorded. And uh, that makes me feel good. I mean, all of these, meaning many of our episodes this fall, will be pre-recorded because, yeah, we are like in motion on the road and far from our respective homes and closets where we normally record this thing. Well, speaking of tour, the tour is selling. You can find all the info for it on callyourgirlfriend.com slash tour. If you're on the fence about coming, this is kind of the time that you have to like do or die, make a decision because a lot <laughs> no of this pr- stuff no is pressure. selling out fast. <laughs> no, no pressure. Listen, uh. I buy tickets for everything that I want to go to very early because I know that like things sell out and I hate that feeling of not being able to go. But that said, if you like living on the edge, I like, I'm not even telling you this as a buy a ticket to call your girlfriend. I'm just saying if you do want to come, this is like these next couple of weeks are that window where everything is narrowing down. <laughs> yeah. And also, um, to be honest, like the fact that the news is moving at this rapid clip and we are like in a constant state of like rage, depression, what the hell is going on as a result of it, like being on tour and talking about the news every night instead of every week means that like if you want to if you want to like check in with us and with some other listeners about things that are happening in real time uh the live show is for you because frankly like that's where we're going to be our heads and our bods are going to be in that space for uh a good several week chunk so come see us uh get your tickets and it's going to be a good time it's going to be excellent callyourgirlfriend.com slash tour um what's the other announcement oh yeah we've been working on this new project where we need your help we want stories about how you met your bestie did you post an ad on craigslist did you find each other on an airplane in the hospital were you arch enemies in middle school and now your friends did you break up get back together did you get introduced by another friend who nobody talks to anymore just leave us a message with the story of your bestie meet cute at 714-681-cygf or even better, you can call us with your bestie and tell us the story together. The number is 714-681-CYGF. If you don't want to call in, you and your bestie can literally just record a voice memo on whatever device you use and email it to us. Ugh, and please do it. I never get tired of bestie meet cute stories. I love hearing about how people met their friends and about how, like, you know, I don't know. It just is so much more complex. And there's like so many different types of stories, I feel like, than romantic meet cutes. And yeah. I am just like dying to hear 
all of your cute stories about how you met. Yeah. You and I have an iconic meet cute. We met um, <laughs> watching the prom episode of uh, Gossip Girl season one. And we were introduced by a mutual friend that we're still very good friends with. So I feel good about all of those things. It's true. It's like our meet cute was like foreordained. Like it really is also a story about like having this very important person in common then and now. And um, and yeah, and like I feel like a lot of friend stories are the same. A lot of them are like a little more random. And yeah, so leave us a voicemail with your bestie. Get your tour tickets. Maybe your bestie meet cute will happen at a Call Your Girlfriend live show. It has happened before. Um, oh, man. That's always the best when you're like, when we ask people, like, how do you two know each other? And they're like, we met in the line. And <sighs> it makes me so happy. I just become a puddle of emotions. Nothing makes me happier. It's true. It's the best. Boom, bitch. Today, we're talking, <laughs> we're talking about a thing that I care about a lot, actually. Universal basic income with a person that I care about a lot, Annie Lowry, who is like one of our smartest friends and a journalist and the author of Give People Money, a book that is out now. So if you want to buy it, you can literally one click order that thing or walk to your closest bookstore and get it. Um, so Annie's book is a reported kind of global look at universal basic income and universal basic income is a stipend that you could give to citizens basically in order to combat poverty. Annie's book is big picture idealism and it's a provocative kind of book I would say in the sense that a lot of people who study UBI don't necessarily want it for the same reasons that Annie outlines it and so if you're somebody who cares a lot about you know inequality you care about like persistent poverty you care about a thing that like technology could do to make the world better if you're a futurist or you're a libertarian if you're a socialist if you're in a union if you are a feminist even if you're a conservative like ubi should be something that is on your radar i'm interested in it also because sometimes i get really sick of what feels like a cyclical conversation about wages, not only the persistent wage gap across gender and race lines, um, but also like the idea that it is the only way and like the way that this conversation has kind of been locked in the same grooves for a long time. Yeah. Like, like people like Annie, I think, really helped me think in a bigger way about what do I really want the world to be like economically and like how can we make that happen? Right. And also just like make you realize that, um, Poverty is actually a big scam and there's no reason like there's no reason that we haven't eradicated poverty except for like paternalism and, um, you know, like patriarchy in a lot of ways. And so it's just really interesting to think about, like, you know, what we think of as big problems and why we're not implementing real solutions to get there. Can I also tell you one reason I love Annie and I love this book? Uh, and it's funny, we were just talking about our meet cute is because you and I are like nerds at heart. Like we love to talk policy. We love to like talk about, you know, like what are the big structural ways that things can change and shift? Like not just getting out in the streets or like what's happening in culture, truly big structural stuff. And that is why I'm excited to talk about this. Yeah, you know, like her brain is so sexy. It's the best <laughs> friend. It's the best friend compliment we give in this family. I love you your brain. How, like, yeah, yeah, I love your brain. And you know how like you like you know you know people who like you want their opinion about everything. Annie is one of those people. So I'm really excited I got to talk to her. I hope that you enjoy it. Hi, Annie Lowry. Thanks for coming on Call Your Girlfriend. Thank you so much for having me, Amina. I am so excited to be here. 
I mean, I I am super excited. You have a new book called Give People Money, How Universal Basic Income Would End Poverty, Revolutionize Work, and Remake the World. Um, that's a lot. It's a lot. It's a big ideas book. It's a It's a book about revolutionary ideas. So we have these big promises in there. You're one of the most impressive people we know, so obviously uh, the title is very apt. (laughs) Um, For the people who do not know, can you explain and call your girlfriend Ease what UBI is? Absolutely. So UBI is universal basic income. So the idea is that everybody in a given country would get something like a social security payment. So right now you get social security if you are at retirement age and you have paid in in the United States. You need to have performed a certain amount of work and paid FICA, which is payroll taxes, and then you get a you know a monthly sum after that, like sort of a fixed monthly sum. And so the idea here is that everybody in the U.S., There's some debate, right, all citizens, all citizens plus permanent residents. Would it just be adults? Would it be adults plus kids? But some huge number of people, some universal number of people would get like $500 or $1,000 a month. No questions asked. Do whatever you want with the money. And so that's the simple radical proposal. I mean, I'm from Africa, so UBI sounds really cool to me because it's already at work in places like in the Great Lakes region. You know, giving people actual money to end poverty is, uh, it sounds like very simple and normal. But over here, it people are kind of freaking out that it's communism. Absolutely. And what's kind of hilarious about that is people are like, oh, this is socialism or this is communism. And not to be like a patronizing nudge about it, but it really isn't, right? Like nobody is talking about like the state taking over industries here. This actually works really comfortably in a capitalist system. It's just that, you know, you're taxing more and you're you're spending more, right? But you're really right to point out that this is not such a crazy idea in lower and middle income countries, more than 100 of them have either unconditional or conditional cash transfer programs, which are hugely effective at alleviating poverty. So I think in in countries where there's less stigma around poverty because there's more of it, there's more of a sense of just like, all right, you want to get people out of poverty, you give them cash, voila, they're out of poverty. Whereas here we have this very stigmatized, judgmental conversation about the reasons for poverty, How much is it an individual thing? How much of it is a social thing? And so we have these really judgmental anti-poverty programs, and we're much more uncomfortable with just giving people cash, which we know is like, it sounds so tautological and so ridiculous. We know it's one of the most effective ways to get people out of poverty. You have pointed this out before, too, that all sorts of people get government assistance, right? It just depends, like, how you want to qualify it. Like, if you have a mortgage, you're definitely getting government assistance of some sort. Yeah. If you benefit from the SNAP program, which is essentially what people call food stamps, you are also getting government assistance. So the stigma just depends on, like, what class level you are at. Yeah, absolutely. So there's really amazing research by a political scientist at Cornell named Suzanne Mettler. And so she asks people across the income spectrum whether they benefit from government programs. And so high-income folks are really likely to say, no, I don't. 
But those people absolutely do. It's just that the programs that they're benefiting from are not really cash programs. They're run through the tax code. And so they're sort of subsumed, right? And so, you know, but then, you know, you look and, and they're benefiting from all sorts of things, right? The 529 college savings plan, the home mortgage interest deduction, all sorts of different giveaways. And the government designs those so that they don't seem like welfare, right? It's just, oh, we're just letting you keep more of your money. But in an accounting sense, that's not different than the government giving you money. They're just happening to do it by lowering your tax burden as opposed to sending you a check. Whereas if you look at low-income folks, they tend to benefit from not insurance or tax incentive programs, but welfare programs. And they're very well aware that they're benefiting from them because those programs are blunt and obvious, right? We are sending you this money, but you have to do these things in return. You know, so if you ask them if they benefit from government programs, they say yes. And so this is one of the ways that our entire system of social insurance and social welfare is designed to be punitive and judgmental towards poor people and to be invisible towards rich people, to give them more choice over their decisions, to say it's, you know, kind of happens invisibly for them and lets them think that they are not beneficiaries when they really are. <laughs> Well, ooh, girl, say it louder for the people in the back. How does UBI work? How much money are we talking? How long does it last? Who is going to pay for it? So I think that the lowest hanging fruit, the most moral thing that we could do for the biggest bang for the buck would be to eliminate child poverty. It feels ridiculous even saying this. The United States has truly abhorrent levels of child poverty. We ensure that we do not eliminate child poverty in any of our welfare programs or our tax programs. You know, it's just, it's hard not to talk about it without getting angry about it. We could do this really cheaply, right? We just spent $80 billion more on our military. One in five kids in the United States grows up in poverty. Through something like a universal child grant, that number could be zero next year without raising a single dollar of taxes. That's wild. It's infuriating, actually. It's disgusting. I, <laughs> I don't know what else to say uh, about it. Yeah, I'm like, we're, we're, building, <laughs> we're building a space for us, but kids are hungry. Okay. Yep. Yeah, you talk about solvable policy problems. There's lots of policy problems we don't really know how to solve. This one is not one of them. This is easy. And so then, similarly, though, you know, just eliminating poverty entirely through the tax code with something called a negative income tax costs something like 200 or $400 billion a year. Like, I'm not going to sit here and say that's not a lot of money, but compared to what our government spends, it's really not. <laughs> you know, it's easy to either raise that through the tax code or, frankly, just to reallocate it from elsewhere. But then— the, the really grand idea of UBI is that we're providing a universal form of social insurance. And we're saying that if you got the luck of the draw to be born an American, the richest society that the planet has ever known, we're just not going to let you fall back to destitution. We're going to give you that boost and that bump. Even doing that, that really big, grandest idea, <laughs> it's not crazy, right? Like our taxes would come in line with Europe's. Um, they would have to change a lot, but I That's just socialism, Annie. We uh, don't want it. Remember, no, it's That's still what capitalism. We don't want to be Denmark. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, let's do real social. Let's go like take over important industries. Let's just like go to Wall Street and be like, surprise! You're all public businesses. You're all worker-owned collectives now. Wow. I feel like we need to like King, expand King Annie, the Overton nationalizing window. everything. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Take well, over the airlines. You don't want it. <laughs> 
<laughs> like Yale University, you're now a public institution. We need somebody to come out and do this so that people will stop calling things that aren't socialism, socialism. Right. It's like, let's do real socialism one time and then you people will shut up about it. It's nuts. Well, you know, one of the things that you've also like written about and touched on that that was kind of like really eye opening for me, honestly, was this intersection of feminism and UBI. Yeah. Something that I was like, oh, feminist policy. Tell me more about it. Yeah. And I know this is, you know, a topic near and dear to the podcast's heart, but We have a system that, yeah, has led to the economic empowerment of how many millions of women, and especially now young women in some ways are doing better than young men, right? Like they're improving their educational credentials uh, at higher rates. But you still have a system that is punishing to women and to parents, and therefore especially to women, though certainly not exclusively. And so women do the lion's share of the uncompensated care work in this economy, taking care of parents, taking care of sick friends, taking care of children. And so that that work, we actually can assign an economic value to it, and that value is in the trillions of dollars. And it's an economic utility, right? The economy does not function without the care work that is predominantly done by women. You mean we don't do it out of the kindness of our hearts? Like there's actually like being being a caregiver or something you can put a value on? Yeah, and it's important, right? And and we can assign a value to it. But economists have known, and this is also to a certain extent, it's just obvious, right, that, that you're not counting it and therefore it doesn't show up in the national accounts. And, you know, it's just performed invisibly, right? It's discounted. And so UBI is kind of a way of providing social recognition for that and a way of saying that that work has value and a way of empowering not just women but all people to do more of it, right? Like what if, uh, you know, or a parent or a family member got sick and it wasn't a given that the woman who in a partnership might be earning less was the one to go ahead and take care of it. What if that family or that household or, you know, whatever, even that uh, group of people living together instead got to make a choice about who did that? And there's a cliff around, it depends on where you are, but around 13 or $15 an hour. If you're not making more than that, then it often makes more sense for you to drop out of the labor force to perform care work. And, um, you know, we've known about that, but we haven't done enough to boost women's wages um, so that they can make that decision uh, with more freedom, right? So feminists for a long time have talked about this as sort of a way of reorienting the whole economy and, you know, by extension, the whole society around a recognition that your work is valuable even if it's not paid. (laughs) Let's take a little break.
the thing that a UBI would do, honestly, is address a lot of gender-based mistreatment at work. Like, yeah. you wouldn't have to stay at a job because you thought that your livelihood depends on it. It gives everybody, like, better bargaining positions. You can negotiate for more flexible hours, that kind of stuff. Yeah. But one of the huge criticisms of this is that people think that, uh, you know, if we give women free money, they're all going to drop out of the economy because, <laughs> you know, like, we're just going to buy we're just going to buy face creams and not do work. That's something that strikes me, one, as, like, it, like, inherently condescending. Yeah. But I also think that it has some merit depending on the amount of money that we're talking about here, right? Yeah, absolutely. So we know from a bunch of different studies that when you give people cash, some people, um, the term in the literature, which is kind of hilarious, is reduce work effort. And um, <laughs> I'm making a T-shirt that says that. Reduce work effort. <laughs> and so uh, it's not so much that they drop out necessarily, although some certainly do. It's not a huge effect is the big thing. Even if you're giving people a fair amount of money, the effect is small. And when you look at people who stop engaging in as much paid labor, it tends to be young people who stay in school for longer Unemployed people who take longer finding and accepting a job, so they often improve their job match, which is a good thing in the long term. Parents of young kids, older folks who start to step back from work or retire earlier. So that's not like everybody stopping working just to apply face creams and hang out at home and eat snacks. Those are socially beneficial things. I think we can honestly have a conversation about if we're in a country this wealthy, do we want people to be able to do those things, to invest in their family, to invest in their education, to stop working so hard if they're older? Maybe they don't feel good, Annie, right? what like America do you live in? I know. What America do you live in? This is not what people want. <laughs> <laughs> people want to work every day until they're 84, tell everybody that they pull themselves by their bootstraps. And yeah. The next but, day. you know, that's, like, maybe that leads to, to, like, people. lower GDP, and maybe that shows us that GDP is not, like, the actual yardstick that tells us the most about a society and how it's thriving. It's hard to argue with those choices. Those are those are all good choices that make sense. And I do think that actually a point that you, you kind of alluded to earlier, which is, what if we make it so that you can leave a shitty, abusive partner? Like, how great would that be? Yeah. You know, what if we do actually provide this insurance that's there for all of these kinds of circumstances? What if you do just want to stop working? I, I mean, I get why, why that can be a hard thing, and you get to this whole kind of makers and takers phenomenon of, oh, we'll have a nation of layabouts. But there's just nothing in the evidence to suggest that that is a true concern. And there's a lot to suggest that, in fact, people would be doing pretty, pretty good and useful things, and they might be happier. Right, because the thing that's exciting to me about UBI is that it's not aimed at households. It's aimed at individuals, right? So you get to make decisions about your marriage, about cohabitation, about all of the, the stuff that you can do as a single person. It just seems to make sense. But also, we don't like it traditionally when women have rights as single individuals in, you know, in the world. Yeah, indeed. Instead, we want to, you know, have them make these really crummy economic choices. And it's funny, there was um, some big studies that were done mostly in the 70s that kind of in this sort of hilarious historical wrinkle were run in part by Dick Cheney and Donald Rumsfeld. And so these were income maintenance experiments <laughs> that tell us a lot. This is kind of the closest that the U.S. actually got to UBI. They ran these huge experiments, um, giving 
giving people cash. And the initial results seemed to indicate that giving people a sort of UBI was actually a sort of a related policy called a guaranteed minimum income would increase divorce rates. And they freaked out over this. They're like, oh, gosh, we can't do that. But now looking back on it, so first of all, that wasn't that wasn't true. It was like some kind of a strange statistical artifact. But second of all, like, I don't know. Like, I think that increasing divorce rates by giving people more economic freedom sounds like a good thing. <laughs> You're right. Sounds sounds fully I mean, in but this, support. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but this is what you're touching on, though, right? Is the this issue of paternalism that yeah. runs through all of our policy in this country? It's like this is how they justify like limiting women's rights. Yeah. This is how they ban abortions. This is how we ban sex work. It like paternalism is why you know like Republicans freak out when they think that poor people are using their uh, SNAP benefits to buy the hot food or junk food. I think that one of the promises of a policy like this is that if you make the benefit universal, then you can get rid of the stereotypes. Yeah, totally. And it gets to, I think, a really important part of this and touching on the intersectional part of it, the Policies that we have that are the most paternalistic, most judgmental, are those that we associate with black women. So cash welfare being the kind of prototypical example here. Welfare recipients are predominantly women uh, or disproportionately women. They are disproportionately black, but still most welfare recipients are white but nevertheless, it has, over the course of decades, become this, this policy that we've just associated with negligent black moms. Mm. And so, you know, we ask the people who participate in this program, who are mostly um, or disproportionately single parents, um, often very low income, to perform a work requirement. And so I was talking to a woman who receives TANF, and she was a mom who was also enrolled in community college. And to meet the— um, Sorry, can you explain what TANF is? Oh, sorry. sorry. Tem- temporary Assistance for Needy Families. So this is welfare, our cash welfare program. And so as part of the programmatic requirement, she had to go to her community college and have her professors sign a sheet attesting that she had been in class in order to receive her state benefits. And this was so humiliating to her, right, to have to go to your professors and be like, oh, hey, I'm a mom, and, like, could you sign this to show? But that's the point, right? Do this or else, or else we're going to take your benefit away, and then what are you going to do with your kids? And it's just, it's infuriating, right? We don't have any of these kinds of requirements for the programs that are aimed at rich folks. You know, you do not have to pee in a cup to get a home mortgage interest deduction. You do not have to meet a work requirement. You don't have to show— We um, should make them meet all these requirements. I know. It would be great, like an asset test. You know, you're going to have to reapply every three months in person. You need to meet with a social worker. You have to justify that turret and your golf cart. <laughs> right. Like we are we're giving you a lot of money. I want to know that you're not going to like snort it all up your nose. Thank yeah, you, rich person. Exactly. And just, you know, as a general point, this is, you know, when you look at which programs have work requirements, which programs are harder to use, which programs are more paternalistic, which programs have more stigma. You know, it's it's those programs where we're trying to to discipline and punish the poor. So when you have these universal programs where there's sense that the money is just yours, that it's just a right of yours, you know, you don't have that same level of stigma and judgment. 
You know, but the thing, too, that this makes me think about is because, you know, for now, I'm just like, wow, this sounds like the dream that the ni- the 70s uh, feminists try to sell everyone, right? Yeah. Um, this uh, here's... Here's panacea for all women's <laughs> for all women's problems, but the truth is that migrant women are always exploited for super cheap uh, care work by wealthier white women, for example, or you know, like thinking about what actually like reproductive labor or um, you know, like care work looks like for Black women is very different. And so I do wonder if there are like feminist policymakers who are thinking about this, how it is, it's nice to say women, but the truth is that there is not a universal experience of being a woman in this country. Gosh, no. And I think that you're right to point, you know, I feel like sometimes UBI's boosters think of it as being the silver bullet that solves all problems. And I don't like that idea. No, it's not. It It's probably better in some ways than what we have, but like we have so much more work to do. And absent other policies, you know, we're not going to have the, the equitable, thriving society that we want to have. And so, you know, there's there's a bunch of issues that this doesn't even come close to touching. So stronger labor standards and a higher minimum wage. <laughs> like, that's, that's going to be necessary. This might touch the black-white income gap a little bit, but it's not touching the black-white wealth gap at all. We haven't even started the conversation exactly about at a national level about solutions for that, even though there are definitely solutions out there. Um, there's there's so many other issues, right? This is one sort of star in this constellation of, of ways in which the economy is really working for some people and really not working for others. Like, I love that we were having this conversation, but in our <laughs> current political dilemma, I'm yeah. like, this sounds like the most wild, <laughs> far-fetched, <laughs> like, just... You know, I'm like, maybe we'll, you know, like, maybe we can convince people that, I don't know, we should give children health care and, you know, like, we'll ensure the kids at least, but everything else is off the table. Do you think that there's, like, what one, what is it going to take to have a political future where a talk about something like this is, it's actually real and not abstract? And, you know, for, for the CYG listeners who are like, I'm fired up about UBI, like, what can you actually do to like to make sure that it's part of our political conversation? It's a great question. And I feel like right now we are in this hyper-polarized political climate in which the parties have moved away from each other. And it's actually in some ways, I think, been great to see a Democratic Party that has been aggressively centrist um, move to the left and start saying like, hey, we hear you that, you know, we're 10 years into this recovery and things are still not exactly working for people. And we're going to try some bigger, bolder solutions, whether it's Medicare for all, whether it's actually working on student debt, right? And so I feel like on the left, there is just so much energy around these big, bold ideas. I've, I've never seen anything like it right, where the scope of the possible has just radically expanded. And I think it all comes down to, first, supporting the laboratory of democracy at the state and local level. You know, one of the great changes in the past couple of years has been the elevation of the minimum wage, and that's that's happened at the state and local level, and it's helped millions, like actual literal millions of people. And so supporting these kinds of initiatives at the state and local level is so important. And then, you know, it sounds, it sounds so ridiculous, but right, just, gosh, like vote, <laughs> getting people to vote, <laughs> um, <laughs> helping more people vote, um, and being politically attuned as the conversation goes forward. I think is is the real thing. And it's it's hard too because in so many ways 
on these kind of questions of universality and simplicity and non-paternalism in government programs, the Trump administration is is going in the opposite direction, right? They're adding work requirements to things. They're gutting the ACA from the inside. And those are policies that can be stripped back and changed in the future. But it, none of this happens without people winning elections first. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm really hopeful that as much as this sounds crazy at the moment, that, that this, the benefit maybe of this more polarized climate is that the pendulum could swing really hard in the other direction. Right. Make America Denmark, please. That's the shirt I want to see. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> hey, Canada, um, what up? <laughs> hey, I know. Uh, I'm going to do a very bad feminist thing now. Yeah. Um, you know, now that we've, like, talked about serious policy. Okay. What would you buy? What, like, decadent thing would you buy with your money if you didn't need it for anything else? I, when I got one of my book checks, I threw out all of my underwear and socks and replaced them. <laughs> it didn't even cost that much money, but I felt like a princess. I still feel like a princess. Like all of my socks match, all of my undies fit my booty. It was so, it's wow. like those small luxuries are like everything. So yeah. I feel like, yeah, if with my UB, if I was going to do something, just maybe I'd move on to bras. But they're they're so much more expensive and they're difficult, you know, they're fussy. That's true. Underwear, underwear is the way to go. My mom would make us like hand wash all of our underwear. And oh. she was like, because that's like not a job you can outsource, according to Mama So. So you had to like hand wash all your own underwear. And she was like very meticulous about inspecting it. <laughs> And so I feel that, like, as an as an adult, I just it was like the first time that I had um, that I could like start buying my own underwear. I just yeah. started buying black underwear. I was like, if you buy only black underwear, nobody will know what's up with it. And you know, it's not like my mom's <laughs> specs. But I feel like you've given me um, you've given me some hope for the end of summer. Maybe this is what I'll do: is get some like. I think I own three pair of socks, and they definitely do not match. No. So maybe I'll go through the sock and underwear drawer and do some work there. Yeah, and I feel like if if it's possible, if it's in your budget, I feel like actually just getting doing the the sort of decadent thing of getting rid of everything and just replacing it, no questions asked. I basically never wear socks, really. But it is nice having a nice pair in the event that you do need to I know. I, I don't wear socks. But then every time I hang out with Anne and Gina, they're always wearing, like, fancy socks. Oh, man. You know, it's always, like, some cool pattern, some cool design, some whatever. And it is truly, like, one thing that makes me feel uncool is how, like, I don't have any sock game. I'm brimming with jealousy at socks I've never even seen. I'm like, where do they get their <laughs> socks? I'm going to get texting immediately. No more work done we're, today. We're gonna... Important sock questions. <laughs> That's right. Wait, so um, what, would, what, would you, what would you do? Do you mind if I ask you the same question? What would I do with my UBI? Yeah. Um, with my f- fake UBI money? Well, Annie, I would invest half. Hello. Um, <laughs> just kidding. I would, I would do no such thing. I would go, like, on a stupid vacation. Yes. Like, very stupid. There's this sailing company that I've been looking at for a while where uh, you basically, like, can rent. It's like you can rent the boat and then you get a chef and, uh, you know, like, some hand decks or whatever. So it's, like, below deck Mediterranean, but, like, the Brooklyn hipster version of that. Wow. And this is is all to say, uh, this is why I'm not a half of a power couple or anybody smart because this is what I do with like money that I'm supposed to save for something else. But you know what? Um, we're going to be fine. This is why we have feminist policies. And probably also I would buy. Here's what would be decadent for me is if I only used one 
like brand for all of my skincare. Oh man. You just like open you open the cabinet and it's like it's all Chanel face wash or it's all like what you know, like name another ridiculous thing. Yeah. That's what I would do. This is why they don't give us the this is why they don't give us the cash transfers. Yeah, this, this is, is also I feel like you know, when in so New York Scrub Street diet is like my favorite feature. And every once in a while oh you get God. somebody who actually accurately reports what they eat. Because I feel like everybody else, it's all like, oh, I ate like nine burgers or whatever. Similarly, I'm not <laughs> sure that I've ever seen a shelfie where it's like this this is actually just the stuff that you use. Because in my, I mean, it's just, it's like a trash fire in my cabinets. It's such a disaster in exactly. there. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Whenever I read the Into the Gloss things, I'm just like, no, I want to know your real skincare exactly. routine. Exactly. I'm like, no, bedroom looks routine. like this. <laughs> No, nobody's does. Um, you know what? Let's start doing uh, real shelfies. That'll be us. It's like, here are the seven things I put on my face, and one of them burned me today. Trash <laughs> shelfies. We just, we Trash shelfies. are so dedicated to reality here. <laughs> uh, Annie, thank you for coming on CYG. Will you come more and talk to us about real money shit? I would absolutely love to. This makes me very happy. You're one of our best fighters, so I'm glad that you're out there teaching the children about real stuff. And also, like, you know, you... I feel like you write in a field that is so thoroughly dominated by men, and it is so refreshing to just be like, hmm, here's what it sounds like when uh, somebody who is not an old white man talks to you about the economy. So thank you. Thank you so much for having me. This was so delightful. Where can we find your work? So you can find me at The Atlantic. That's where all of my writings happen. And then my book is published by Crown, and you can get it wherever books are sold. Love it. Thanks, Annie. Thanks, Amina. Ugh, Annie, the best. (laughs) She's so smart. She's so great. Let Annie run the—make Annie Lowry King and let her run everything. You can find us many places on the internet on our website, callyourgirlfriend.com. You can download the show anywhere you listen to your faves or on Apple Podcasts, where we would love it if you left us a review. You can email us at callyrgf at gmail.com. We're on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at callyrgf. You can even leave us a short and sweet voicemail at 714-681-2943. That's 714-681-CYGF. Our theme song is by Robin. Original music is composed by Carolyn Pennypacker-Riggs. Our logos are by Kanisha Sneed. Our associate producer is Destry Maria Sibley. This podcast is produced by Gina Dalvac. <laughs>